0: com slash weight loss.
1: This podcast is a Royfield brown production. Find others on iTunes.
0: All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. that Britain is just a small island that no one pays attention to. A former colony won the right to determine its own destiny. Mid-Atlantic is part of the Agora Podcast Network, and each month we have a podcast of the month for your podcasting ears. This month it's The Cannonball which is a podcast which attempts to read all the books of Harold Bloom's list of the books which are part of the Western canon. So if you want to learn about the most important books which have helped to create Western culture and are important in marking its growth in uh, literature, we recommend that you go over to the Cannonball podcast. You can find it on a podcatcher of your choice. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. Today I'm joined by Nick Gowing, who was the main news presenter for the BBC's international 24-hour news channel, BBC World News, from 1996 to 2014. Nick has um, a new study at a thing called Thinking the Unthinkable. In it, Nick has projected things like Brexit, the rise of Trump, and the failure of Theresa May to get a majority in the 2017 UK election. It covers many other themes, such as the failure of leadership um, across the globe. Um, Nick, hello, how are you? Hello, Royfield. You're Nostradamus, aren't you? In what sense? A lot of people have been taken aback by the events. In, in the last two years, and I suppose that you could look at the failure of the West, West response to Putin's invasion of Crimea to say that, you know, the world was definitely changing. But I think most seasoned commentators wouldn't have said two years ago or even the day before Brexit that the UK was going to was going to Brexit. And uh, the day before Donald Trump's election to become the 45th president of the United States, most seasoned analysts would have said that wasn't going to happen either. So um, if you could see all this coming, how could you see it all coming?
1: I'm very touched that you should compare me and my co-author Chris Langdon to Nostradamus. Um, I guess there is an element of truth about that, Royfield, Field, but um, I wouldn't claim that. But I think central to what I'm, I'm here to talk about is the fact that leadership is failing Leadership is failing because it doesn't understand the enormity of change that's underway And when I left the BBC uh, by choice three years ago That's when Putin invaded Crimea and to cut a very long story short It became clear to me with my many years of experience and 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 analysis that something big was happening That there was a new normal, but no one could define what it is How could Putin invade another sovereign country and get away with it? How come the Saudi Arabians were reducing oil prices by 60% suddenly? And so I started this study over a flat white coffee in a, in a, in a coffee shop, and it's uh-huh. now 24-7 and 25-8. It is now very demanding. And what we've uncovered, talking to chief executives, chairmen, very senior people in government, particularly public servants, not just in Britain, but in America, across Europe, in Singapore, across Asia, and so on, is a real sense of being scared about what is happening. They cannot really get a grip on the enormity of change that's underway because the key finding is the following. The conformity which gets you to the top in many ways disqualifies you now from understanding the enormity of change that's underway. And we're talking just after what many people are saying is the extraordinary outcome in the British election called by Prime Minister Theresa May to strengthen her mandate. She's in fact weakened it. So it's mid-morning, we've had about 500 seats declared in the UK general election and the overwhelming message is that Theresa May's election gamble has backfired. I'm joined by George Parker, our political editor, to talk us through the events of the night. George, it's fair to say the British electorate has sprung another surprise on us. Yeah, we're getting used to these surprises. It was only about a year ago (laughs) we were sat in this newsroom talking about the EU referendum and here's one we never predicted. At the start of this campaign, it looked like Theresa May was going to have a sort of regal procession back to number 10. It's completely backfired. I was a few days ago actually talking to 28 chairmen of major companies saying, don't assume the the, the, the opinion polls are right. You will probably face a shock here, not just from Jeremy Corbyn, but a backlash against the system. And that's what we've seen, a backlash against Theresa May and a backlash against the traditional politics. And one of the things that's emerging is the new generation, the millennials who wanted to vote and they wanted a voice and they don't like politics. Now, this is the latest. The same has happened in France with the destruction of the main political parties in the presidential election in the last two or three months. And similarly, this time last year, literally, in the days before the Brexit referendum. We were saying on the basis of our analysis and how open and scared many people are right at the highest levels, that Brexit was likely to be the result of the vote and that um, David Cameron would have made an appalling judgment given that he didn't want Brexit. And the same thing had happened with Hillary Clinton in the uh, US presidential election. She believed in traditional politics Trump was brilliant, mainly because he was data mining and finding what was really upsetting a lot of people. And it's the same in the corporate sector. When you look back to the United Airlines catastrophe of that 69-year-old Vietnamese doctor being hauled off a plane two months ago uh, in Chicago's uh, O'Hare Airport on its way to Louisville, Kentucky, and the way United Airlines were completely wrong-footed by that. It ended up with the chief executive uh, three or four weeks later up in front of the, the, the House um, Transportation Committee being told if you don't get your behavior right we will sort you out and the same things happened to Pepsi as well PepsiCo when, that, when with that enormous um, high profile advert from Kendall Jenner um, showing Pepsi being taken to a, a policeman in a riot, in riot gear. In America where Black Lives Matter is a big issue where the police are killing black people, they completely misjudge, and there are many, many more examples, but overarching Roy,ful is the following: it's the fact that leaders who you believe are leading are in fact not in touch with seismic changes which are going on in virtually every country, and that's the tragedy. It's not about failing a uh, failure it's about failing to understand the enormity of change, and it's happening very quickly and shocking those at the top, because they haven't thought that actually maybe they don't understand what's happening.
0: I suppose one of the things which I'm really getting from what you're saying is that um, you've said very clearly that leaders are ill-equipped to understand what is going on. And, and, I, and I'm presuming that part of that is is kind of structural. So you have... Um, Whether it's millennials or whether it is um, slightly um, older adults, people who don't necessarily get their news uh, from traditional news media anymore and actually take it from very diverse um, sources does that mean that this isn't just a problem of political leadership but also um it gets to the hub of the matter in terms of um what is dubbed as fake news because social media is where a lot of people are now getting their news from so where does that leave traditional media in this kind of vacuum of trying to understand what is going on and, and leaders trying to lead
1: I wouldn't really get hung up on fake news in the media, actually, if I can put it like that. In the end, because whether you're in in North America or you're in the United Kingdom or you're in France or you're in Italy or many of these countries, it's about the fact that people feel um,
0: disaffected at what leaders are doing for them. But, but, But I think, Nick, I think maybe I'll put it somewhat inelegantly. What I was trying to say is that you have leaders traditional political leaders, and you said there was, you know, a a similar um, explosion in terms of the political norms in France recently with the election of of Macron. But these things aren't just taking the political elites by surprise. They're also taking traditional media by surprise. The reason reason I'm
1: dissuading you from talking about fake news is that that's a label that Donald Trump has put on, mm -hmm. that he doesn't like a lot of the news that's coming out, even though Actually, it's accurate. The New York Times and Washington Post. Absolutely. Many of, yeah. many of the newspapers in the United States have got, had an explosion in circulation because people want to find out what's happening. The Times has been one of the president's favorite targets. In fact, he's tweeted about the NYT, labeling it failing 53 times, clearly trying to get that nickname to stick. So joining me now is the head of that newsroom, Dean Bacay, the executive editor of The New York Times. And let's clear it up right away, Dean. Is the Times
0: failing? Why does he say it? What are the facts? We're not failing at all. In fact, um, our our digital subscriptions are going through the roof. Even print subscriptions are up. We're a profitable company. We're a newsroom that's hiring. I mean, we're a big, vibrant, important newsroom. I think, I think the reason he goes after us, to be frank, is I I I, I have to say I think there is an effort by this administration to minimize the press.
1: There's a distraction here, which I, if I may say, I don't think is helpful to understanding the weaknesses of leaders. He's trying to blame the media for his own weaknesses as a leader. And that's why fake news is a distraction. I did a report about this 20 years ago. It's not fake news. It's about the new vulnerability of power, politics and systems from what you and I And Billions of other people around the world have in our pockets the mobile phone the ability to communicate very quickly This is something what I'm trying to get over is something rather different Mm -hmm. It's the fact that those we assume can help run companies that we use and Governments who govern us are actually in deep trouble Because they don't accept or are they not willing to understand that they've got to think about the way they lead in very different ways In many ways, it's very exciting, but there's a hangover Of of thinking well politics is going to be the way it's always been no that that time is over that 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 running a company is going to be the same as it's always been no that time is over when you have and I can say this now publicly when you have someone like Indra Nui the chief executive of PepsiCo based in the United States um, uh, of Indian descent uh, and she says we're in danger of creating angry customers and angry citizens and she's now said that very publicly and we're in danger of making it very difficult for people to actually feel comfortable with some of our products. That is a big change. You'd never have had that three or four years ago. and People are being caught out. Now, this is not a criticism. There are ways forward. But what you've seen in the British election, the French election, the election of Donald Trump and the Brexit referendum last year is a disaffection, a discomfort, an anger against those who are running um, organizations and governments. Now, is it a failure? It is in some ways, but I would say it's a failing of governance. And the difficult difference is this. Somehow we've got to find ways of generating new generations of leaders who actually want to be more humble, want to have more courage, and want to be prepared to say, maybe I don't know what's happening. I've just heard a former very senior conservative politician in, uh, in, here in the United Kingdom saying, um, he predicted Eric Pickles, Sir Eric Pickles. He predicted an 87 seat majority for the Conservative Party. And he just said, I don't know why got I couldn't work out what was happening. And I'm a senior politician. And this is indicative of just how difficult this now is. And it's about how mindsets and culture and behaviour have got to change. And what you've seen is, in I have to say, an arrogance of, of Theresa May believing that she should go, for coke, she should go, she could go for a walking holiday, decide to have an election, everyone would be happy, and she'd win with an even bigger majority. It's been a political disaster for her and the Conservative Party, and probably for Britain with the Brexit uh, negotiations just about to begin.
0: Can we look back historically and see a similar time where leadership had the rug pulled from from underneath it?
1: Many, many times. In many ways, uh, you could say quite with very, every great, um, every good reason, uh, Royfield, that history is is peppered with this kind of stuff where leadership gets it wrong. The problem now is that everything is happening so quickly. You know, we can talk about the beginning of World War One. We can talk about the end of. Um, uh, of horse-drawn traffic and so on but that took a long time to evolve into cars and so on what we're seeing now is the kind of thing where you might have expected change in 10 years happening in 10 months or 10 weeks or 10 days or 10 hours and that's why i use that word again many at the tops of companies and, and governments are scared because they know they can't handle this anymore and our findings are that people are overwhelmed and inside companies And inside governments, you've now got um, a fear of making career limiting moves where people who are employed to give information to the top are frightened of giving it because they might lose their jobs when jobs are getting even more scarce. At the moment, you've got in the United States a president uh, whose chief chief strategist, Steve Bannon, says our aim is the deconstruction of the administrative state. Um, He encourages people to just go out break the glass and not ask questions at the moment Three-quarters of the jobs which should be there in the US administration under Trump. There are no nominations for them these are big big changes and Whether you're in America or the United Kingdom or France or maybe Germany in the build-up to the election in the next three or four months These are big changes and I put to you that those at the top don't really aren't really willing to recognise how seismic this is. But the next generation are, and that's where the backlash is coming. And many of them, of the next generation, don't even want to go into companies, don't want to go into government because they don't like what they see. That's why there's a leadership crisis.
0: All right, let, let's go back. So I talked about hi- historical um, analogies to this. I'm thinking 1848. That was the year when... The rug was pulled completely under the ruling um, elites all throughout Europe, um, but the powers of um, reaction, of conservatism, of the status quo um, rode back into power pretty quickly. What they did was to uh, give lip service where needs be to the uh, to the cries and the needs of in inverted commas the ordinary person. But things kind of went back the way that they were. Aren't we just looking at an 1848 situation? Um, the the leaders, the elites, will give token lip service to people clamouring for change. Um, we'll have some more political leaders that maybe are a little bit younger, maybe a little bit browner, be a little bit uh, more responsive to uh, the needs of, let's say, the forgotten blue-collar worker in in Dayton, Ohio, or in Sunderland, in the UK, or in the Ruhr Valley in Germany, but things will settle back down.
1: I don't think that's a working assumption. I think that's a working assumption which is flawed and dangerous now. Remember, back in, in that period, um, like 100 years ago, at the start of the second, World, First World War, no one had mobile phones. Things still took a bit of time to happen. I don't think that that is a realistic um, assumption because I think it it smacks of arrogance and complacency and an unwillingness to unwillingness to understand that these are profoundly new times There's always been disruption There's always been disruption whether it be war or new innovations But this is about a level of disruption which very quickly is disrupting and destabilizing and challenging the existential um, uh, Right and ability of governments and corporates to still exist and this is a very serious issue and you're right to, to say in history because someone like Professor Margaret McMillan who is a brilliant historian I've heard her we have shared platforms and she said look the world first world war started after the assassination of the Archduke um, in Sarajevo in 1914 and the elites thought that this would not be a problem five weeks later the world was at war and millions and millions of people were killed over four years. And look at where we are at the moment with, and I don't want to go too far on this, with the authoritarianism, which is now developing in some places, and what happened with Hitler, who was an elected politician. Are elected politicians are going to suddenly become autocrats? Now, you may say, I'm being far too pessimistic, far too alarmist, but what we've signaled in the last three years in this in this study has now become accurate and predictive and prescriptive, and it's been shown to be the case. And when I sit with those 28 chairmen of very big companies around a table over lunch, and they don't want to believe the possibility that actually uh, the polls are wrong here in Britain, and Theresa May will not get an overall majority, and shouldn't they be thinking about Jeremy Corbyn and the new power of the millennials? That is worrying because they're blind and they're too conformist.
0: Tell us about exactly how you go about drawing in the different elements of the study. Tell us about the scope of it, and tell us exactly how you've actually pulled it together.
1: Good question, because the data and the methodology is really important. And if, if I was looking at you or your, your listeners, I would be having my f- two fingers up in a Trumpian way between my <laughs> thumb and finger, which is uh, there are no fake bits of data. Everything is based on data. Everything is based on interviews. And it's the interviewees, the highest level of chairman and chief executive, and those in government who, on a one-to-one basis, confidentially largely, um, without us mentioning their names, have shared with us why they are so frightened. But they won't talk about it publicly because it might affect their job. So we've now got uh, 450 hours of of taped interviews. We've got 3,500 pages of transcript. That is the database. And business schools don't really like what we've discovered because, of course, it goes against the the orthodoxy, which they have um, made their careers out of. So it doesn't sit easily. But this is the new profound change. And we're talking because of what's happened in Britain. Yet that was forecast. It was predictable. And therefore, there's a a refinement here for you, which is the following. Our title of our, our study is Thinking the Unthinkable. Actually, it's thinking the unpalatable because much of what takes place, like the migration crisis in Europe, all of it was signaled well in advance, but the people at the top didn't want to believe or didn't have time to believe that it was really a major threat. And look at the state of Europe at the moment, an existential threat where migration is threatening to topple several governments because of the nationalistic tendencies which have emerged. That's why this is so serious. And much of what we're discussing actually happens before those at the top realize it's happening. Like the chief executive of United Airlines, he didn't offer any kind of commiseration about what happened to that chap being uh, pulled off the plane for at least 48 hours, by which time the brand and reputation of United Airlines had been destroyed. So- Selling a little or a lot?
0: um structurally when will it be over when will the new tectonic plates of governance uh, be put into place
1: i don't think that'll happen and i'll tell you why because uh, and i'm not this is not to depress you and your listeners it's actually to be realistic again in many ways you ain't seen anything yet and the reason is the following artificial intelligence and algorithms are already replacing traditional jobs in many many places. It's all very well Donald Trump saying he's gonna bring back work and create jobs in Pennsylvania and so on. But actually, almost all the jobs that have been lost have been lost to robots and automation. Many people in banks will no longer have jobs because people like you and me are using our contactless cards and that'll be replaced by Bitcoin and blockchain. And there won't be the need for people to do all the back back office stuff in their white shirts, sitting there running running accounts and so on. Similarly, many in the legal profession, lawyers, barristers, won't have jobs because actually algorithms can do it in a fraction of a few seconds compared to people being employed for 500 to to £1,000 an hour to give advice. These are seismic changes. And I was on a platform with someone from the MIT Media Lab um, a few weeks ago who was talking about blockchain and Bitcoin? He said at least 50% of people in the financial services and banking businesses will be gone. Their jobs won't exist. And that's why there can't be a return. This is about massive structural change. And I think it's going to be a really serious problem because many people who have nice jobs, who can afford enough to borrow for a house, will find that they may not have a job, that they haven't reskilled, and therefore they can't afford a house. So you could ultimately see the hollowing out of the middle class. Um, I hope I'm not depressing people, but what this is about, it's about working out what your skills must be for the new economy and the new environment in this, in this new period of disruption. And most people believe everything's just going to be the same as it's been, and it's just a blip. I don't think that you can assume that at all, based on our work.
0: So you're looking at a world where most people have uh, universal income, and where um, we are working much less than, than 40 hours a week?
1: Um, I think the nature of jobs will be significantly different. They won't be jobs, they'll be work. It'll be more of a portfolio existence for most people. People will have to skill, reskill, learn, relearn. Um, I don't think you can say with any certainty that there's going to be that kind of leisure for start. I think people probably will be earning less, which which is why there's a hollowing out of the middle class. Um, I think the next generation have a different attitude to work, which is good. But it doesn't mean to say they want to have a mortgage and a car. Actually, they won't need a car because what they'll do is they'll call it up Google um, Uber style and it'll arrive. And you won't have uh, a very expensive bit of metal or plastic sitting outside your house for 95 percent of the time and not using it. So we are seeing that level of fundamental change and the idea that people will have leisure time, great ambition. um, I wonder if people will just actually be merging much more their off time and their on time because they've got more of a gig economy. As to the issue of the universal basic income, great idea. The Finns are trying it already in Finland, but it requires a significant amount of money for governments to be able to support this. And if you've got a reducing tax take because fewer people are in traditional jobs, then the money is not available for a universal basic income. So that would have to be costed and funded in a rather different way. I can see it happening just simply so people can make ends meet, but I don't see where the tax – and the revenues are going to be to make that happen in any comfortable way, which allows people to have more than just basic bread and eggs and uh, fruit and so on, and to keep themselves going. They certainly won't be able to afford a, a mortgage and to buy their own house on universal basic income. But,
0: but just on that last point, the the whole uh, drive, the want uh, to buy, buy bricks and mortar um, is Peculiar to, to not, not all not all cultures by any stretch of the imagination. You know, the majority of adults don't own their own house in Germany or, or, or in Italy, for example. That we, this is a, a peculiar um, kind of mid-Atlantic, transatlantic obsession, isn't it? So it's Brits, Americans and funny enough, the Spanish that, that want to own their own houses. So if you take getting a mortgage um, out of um, someone's income... Maybe a universal income doesn't sound too um, too kind of out there. And there have been studies in places like Kenya where various villages have been given a universal basic income for, I think, this two years in, in this one study. And it's made profound changes um, actually on, on, on the ground in terms of things like infant mortality, but also educationally. Just the very fact that um, working people don't have to worry about the absolute fundamental basics, that actually they can... Um, Economically plan for the future, and maybe it's a, a, a hollowing out of the of the of the middle class, maybe, um, but but maybe what it is is fortifying uh, the working class. I don't know.
1: Well, um, I'm spending quite a bit of time in Kenya, and um, I think Kenya and the West are rather different. Um, one of the companies we've been looking at, Safaricom, which is the big telco um, in in Kenya, this time last year faced an existential crisis because a million people million young people in in Kenya don't have jobs or have very little earning and they literally turned on safaricom and said you're stealing our money you're charging us too much for data Um, so I don't think uh, Kenya sadly uh, is yet at that point where it's got that kind of level of um, revenues which can support people living in the shanties um, who don't really have jobs and half uh, 25 uh, half, half the population is under 25 now and that's a big, big problem. But these are mega, mega issues, Roy felt, um, to be mm-hmm. talking about. When ultimately this is, whether you're in Kenya or Washington or London or Paris or many of these other capitals, it's about how those at the top are going to manage this, how they're going to survive as companies, how they're going to survive as governments. And what we're talking about is what's happened here in Britain in the last you know, day or two. The fact is um, the leadership, the prime minister herself – And the leadership of a party which didn't know much about what she was about to do, they feel decimated by the fact they got it so wrong. And really, I'm here to share with you why people are getting it so wrong, because they can't believe a lot of these unthinkables are actually going to take place. And that's why it's so disturbing.
0: So we talked about um capital and we went on a brief kind of um sojourn talking about universal basic income but really what you're talking about is political capital to have the strength of your convictions to actually say that I don't know there are um un, you know there are uh, there are the known unknowables and there are the on unknowable unknowables and we have to kind of face up to that and we need to be much more agile in our responses and we need to be much more creative in our thinking where is that new politician going to come from who and and that new business leader is it going to be somebody in the in the business world is it somebody in in the tech sphere politically where does this new breed of millennial friendly politician come from what will they look like
1: um Very good question. I don't know. I think it's brave people who want to go into leadership these days, and that's why we call it an existential threat, because um, many of the next generation don't like what they see in companies, don't like what they see in politics, and would prefer to take a risk trying a startup, Um, even if they don't end up as Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, And I think you've put your finger on a really important issue. I can't answer that question at the moment, but we see it as a real vulnerability and why we say there's an existential threat to government and governance, because people will always feel they want to be a great politician. But if you're not earning very much and you've got all this hassle, it's a tough one.
0: So, Nick, you're putting together this study. It seems to me like like it's a work in progress. Um, Does it actually have an end?
1: No. No. Um, it's, an, it's evolving um, even writing a book is difficult because you've got, to, you've got to set a deadline and we're preparing our next stage of research and it's just a constantly moving target but there's a very clear direction of travel and what we're going to do is, is make this into not just a hard book but also a platform which people can access on a routine basis where we keep adding and we keep um, uh, uh, sharing new experiences both positive and negative This is a very fast-moving, very dynamic and quite worrying development. More and more people are beginning to at least appreciate that this is a problem. But I'm now going to say what I feel it's like. It's a bit like dealing with alcoholics. None of them want to talk at the top about having a problem. But get them in the room together behind closed doors. After about an hour, they all say they've got the same problem. Now what we've got to do is we believe is create a community in a process which helps those at the top understand that they've got to be leaders in a different way and that could become attractive then to the next generation to become leaders
0: but it's a long way off at the moment i fear nick gowing thank you for coming on to mid-atlantic and sharing your work thinking unthinkable with us good listener you can find the website at thinkunthinkable.org Um, You can catch up with us um, on Twitter, where we are Mid-Atlantic Show, also on Facebook. Um, Nick, um, on social media, how can people find you?
1: Um, At uh, nick, N-I-K, at thinkunthinkable.org.
0: Again, thank you for coming on to Mid-Atlantic.
1: My pleasure.